Okay, my kid is a taxpayer. I just dropped her off at her first day of her job. That's a little hard to believe. It's an auspicious day in anyone's life, I think. It probably has uh, some mixed emotions for her. It does certainly for me. It's had me thinking about my work life and not my academic life. I sometimes joke with my students that work is the application of force to objects and anything else is something else. It's not true. I don't believe it, but I used to have a lot of different jobs. I've did farm work. I did construction. I worked in a mechanic shop. I worked in a gas station. I drove a truck. Did a lot of different laboring jobs in different contexts. And I met a lot of interesting people. Those work relationships are really fascinating. I'm grateful for them. I got to see a lot of different people in their lives and interact with them in ways that you don't quite do in other areas of life. I I miss sometimes the idea of working together on a project with people and getting it done. And as you know from my previous podcasts, I value physical work and the work that leaves a record. And I also am interested in, as you know, looking for signs of things that have become invisible or less visible and restoring them to visibility. And I I'm, I'm wonder where that takes place in our culture. There used to be a bridge on my campus that I was kind of fascinated by. It was actually taken down to put up a more modern bridge, but it was made out of old narrow-gauge railroad track. It was probably just lying around. I, I doubt if the guys who built it consulted the engineering department. It was made out of pipe, narrow-gauge railroad iron, and some steel plate. And you could see that the rivets were hand-riveted. Hand it had these gussets on the corner, and they were riveted connections. And you could see the hammer blows on the rivets, some of them fairly crude. You could see that they were taken out hot or maybe heated up on a torch because some of them, the mushroomed heads, were much more deformed than the than the than the formed heads on the other side. And I liked looking at the hammer blows of those people who came before because I imagine the workmen who built something like that probably had grandchildren who went to our school. The visible work, I guess, is always built upon a foundation of invisible work. I mentioned in my previous podcast the way that the foundation of almost everything is built on the invisible work of women. Women do visible work, too, certainly. But there's always a foundation of an invisible work. As I've said so many times, when somebody gets credit, somebody else did it first. I've been thinking about this in particular lately because thinking about the unemployment crisis that we've had due to the mismanagement of this pandemic and uh, the ways that so much of our work is in the service industry now and so much of it is invisible and it's easier to erase invisible people and I'm, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about the lingering consequences of this unemployment 
And I'm wondering who's going to stand up and, and be the record of this sort of experience. I think in American culture, one of the great things about it, fortunately, is that we have had people that would go on record for this experience. I mean, I got some problems with John Steinbeck's portrayal of my people in uh, Grapes of Wrath, and I favor Woody Guthrie's portrayal. But certainly, we have a record of that experience because people in the culture industry, also John Ford in his great film of the of the novel, um, decided to take it upon themselves to represent that work and reflect it. A lot of that work is credited to writers of the turn of the 20th century like Stephen Crane um, or photographer writers like Jacob Ritz. His book, How the Other Half Lives, was profoundly influential. And I think that that's, uh, that that's fair. I think that those people definitely, Upton Sinclair in the jungle, um, you know, Frank Norris and McTeague, put the struggles of working people on the page for us. Really, though, he's seen as more of a romantic. Whitman, of course, is the one who's responsible for this. Maybe. I mean, there are others. But Whitman's enumeration of working people, mechanics, formerly enslaved or currently enslaved people, women, wives, mothers, seamstress, seamstresses, washerwomen, the people he lists uh, in the working world as part of the democratic American experiment, um, I think are, are profound that he gives recognition to and lends visibility to that invisible work. Maybe the first great working class novel or the first novel of literary realism is Rebecca Harding Davis's Life in the Iron Mills. Again, the men of the turn of the century, like Crane, get credit for a tradition that she really starts in her portrayal of uh, iron mill workers. It comes out right around the moment of the Civil War in 1861, and she talks about the exploitation of these laborers, and particularly the political exploitation, where the owners of the mills see them not just as labor, but also as votes that they can mobilize on voting day by giving them drinks and directives um, to support the political interests of the mill owners rather than the political interests of the mill workers. Voting against your self-interest, I guess, is a, an old American tradition. Really, for me, where this conversation takes place and the people who have taken the responsibility to represent the people who are often invisible in our culture um, and people they often come from on their own, um, people representing that foundation that's unrecognized that we talk about, the buried foundation, and they get to be the visible edifice of that legacy, um, are songwriters. In America, folk music as we still call some of it, has been so completely assimilated into the American musical mainstream uh, that its impulses have gone with it. We still have people who represent working class people in our music, in all traditions. It's not just you know Bruce Springsteen and Woody Guthrie. It's also in 
hip-hop, it's in blues, it's in jazz too. Jazz is the beautiful and refined end of that spectrum. Speaking of work, somebody's running a power plane out my window and I can hear it, hear it grinding away. And I think that tradition of folk songs that represent work is really um, an authentic American working class poetry that's really, really worthy of our attention and our study. If you're listening to the podcast on Spotify, um, you might want to check out my playlist, by the way, Working Man Blues. It has most of the songs I mentioned on here and a lot of other working songs. Again, this tradition is huge and it just scratches the surface. I just put together an hour playlist out of songs that just popped into my head sort of first thing, but there are thousands I've missed, but it might be a good starting point for immersing yourself in some of this music if you're interested. Okay, it's a half an hour later and maybe the power plane is done running. Sounds like a dentist drill. Now I know how my neighbors feel about me. It proves the point, though, that the work goes on and that the physical work, the application of force to objects takes precedence over the so-called intellectual work. Anyway, we have this great tradition of songwriting and that represents working people and it's often uh, it, it's often sort of soft pedals the experience of them but if you learn a little bit of interpretation you can you can figure out what's beneath the surface of that. There are two people really important to me. There are several, but two I'd like to mention in that conversation of teaching us to sort of look into that music. One is Bill Malone. He's a, an American academic and writer. He writes on country music. Um, and he's starting to do a kind of work that another one of my heroes, Sterling Allen Brown, started in the 1930s or so. In 1940, he published an important book called The Southern Road, it's a book of poetry, um, but in a way, it's an attempt to teach people how to look into music, into particularly into the blues. He has a great poem about Ma Rainey, um, and he sort of uh, shows some methodology for uncovering the deep structure of that music and those compositions. For instance, he starts the poem, When Ma Rainey Comes to Town... Folks from any place, miles around, from Cape Girardeau to Poplar Bluff, flocks in to hear Ma do her stuff, comes flivering in or riding on mules or packed in trains, picnicking fools. He starts off with a standard diction, maybe even academic diction. He slides into vernacular um, and he shows that the language used in those songs is an intentional aesthetic decision designed to appeal to an audience in a particular way and it's not a sort of default language based on quote-unquote not knowing any better. I think this is really important. I think it's important too to see in country music that there are these fields of stereotypes that the songs often attempt to navigate or undo and I think that responding to the stereotype at the outset is a mistake. In addition to his work as a poet, um, Sterling Allen Brown was influential as a professor and had a profound influence on a generation of students that went on to do great work. 
I guess his most famous student would have to be Toni Morrison, who did all right for herself. One of his students um, was Leroy Jones, later known as Amiri Baraka, and his work also has a profound influence on me, particularly his book, Blues People. Um, he describes a situation where Brown is lecturing him on the importance of black music in America. He's standing in front of his record collection, and he says to him, and here I'm quoting from Blues People from 1963, This is the history. This is your history, my history, the history of the Negro people. And he says, basically, that in music is the history of people who don't show up in books. And in America, we care about the people who don't show up in books. Again, they show up in books. There's a long tradition of African-American literature that reflects the lives of working people. And there's a long tradition of, of, uh, of literature by print literature by a lot of different writers. But again, music is where this conversation plays out in a really vital and interesting way, I think. I've always hoped to sort of do for country music something like what Brown does for the blues. You think about a lot of these songs that, that I'm thinking about, and, and again, the tradition is huge. It, it, it spans all areas of music, but one of my favorite alternative country groups that comes out of kind of the punk scene in the 1990s is a band called Freakwater and uh, in one of their songs, Waitress Song, Catherine and Janet harmonize these final lines. If I didn't go to bed afraid about some bills that'll never get paid, I wouldn't be down at the laundromat watching my work clothes fade. It's just such a great image. One, it uh, talks about the way crippling debt maintains us in, in poverty. That image of the work clothes fading, though, I mean, it really is a song also about the woman's life fading, her ambitions fading, and that clothes, work clothes at the laundromat declining. You're going to have to buy new work clothes. You're going to have to have more debt, and you're not going to have any more of anything else with that. And it's a, it's a, a chilling image. And the song, in a typical freak water way, is kind of upbeat, kind of darkly comic. Like a lot of uh, bluegrass music or country music, there's a sort of dark themes combined with sort of catchy, catchy instrumentation. In the Merle Travis song, 16 Tons, it was a hit song. He was a famous singer. and You know, he was always dressed in fancy cowboy suits. He had the guitars with his names all over him and everything. And But he came from the coal mines, his father was a coal miner. He was destined to be a coal miner. The song 16 Tons really is a serious commentary on the structure of that kind of labor. Everyone knows the lines. You load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Again, he talks about the dual exploitation of workers in a one-industry town. They're not paid in money. They don't have cash. They have to buy things from the company store. Often the company store extends to them a kind of predatory credit that keeps them in line, prevents them from striking, for instance. You can't strike for better pay if they're going to come and get your refrigerator or your wife's sewing machine. And that kind of debt 
It's kind of like sharecropping where you borrow money before you plant and you're perpetually in debt. I think it's the condition of working people in this country to be perpetually in debt. I guess uh, predatory credit card lending has taken over for that. I think my daughter will probably get a credit card in the mail now that she's got a job. In Coal Miner's Daughter, Loretta Lynn is a, obviously a great champion of this kind of music and this tradition, but um, she talks about getting shoes from a mail-order catalog, money made from selling a hog. Again, you got to have cash if you're going to go outside of that system of the country, company store. Her dad probably can't get any more credit at the company store. He's just locked into a cycle of debt, not getting paid in cash continued exploitation. There's beauty in, in this too. I mean, it's not all it's not all about wage slavery, but uh, I mean, in Steve Earle's song, The Mountain, where he talks about, you know, living your whole life underground in a mine, he also talks about the beauty in the mountain. He sings that it holds me and keeps me from worry and woe. And you can't really have this conversation without mentioning Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton has been fabulous and wonderful and famous forever since the 1960s when she rose to fame with uh, Porter Wagner on the Porter Wagner show. She just seems like she's always been around and now she's super rich and she wrote the most popular and recorded song ever, I Will Always Love You. And she really you know is a is a wonderful spokesman for the music she doesn't forget where she comes from she continues to perform traditional music but she came from real poverty her father was a sharecropper she had 11 brothers and sisters she was born on the floor of a one room cabin in little pigeon river tennessee so she's kind of the real deal and she doesn't forget it or where she comes from. In her song, Coat of Many Colors, um, she sings, I was rich as I could be in my coat of mother, many colors my mama made for me. I think it's interesting in a lot of ways, but particularly in the subtle way it engages the, the Joseph story from Genesis. The kids tease Dolly at school. They're mean to her, just like Joseph's brothers but just like Joseph of old, she prevails in the end. I think the song speaks to the kind of attempts to lend dignity to that invisible work of her mom's. Like, my mom made this thing, and I was fabulous, and I was different, and I got teased for it. But being fabulous and different is exactly what defines Dolly Parton and makes her who she is in the world. Again, um, those attempts by her mom to lend dignity to her life and reframe their experience in a positive way is the foundation that Dolly Parton gets to stand upon. Anyway, I've just been thinking about work and I want to remind us that there's honor in all honest work and I am truly grateful for the foundation of work, both visible and invisible, that I stand upon when I do what I do both the intellectual labor 
of my predecessors, um, the cultural work of the songwriters, artists, and musicians I admire, and of the work that my family did to provide for me and get me to where I can do whatever it is I do now and where I'm able to drive my daughter to her first day of work.